0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Holy friends, thank you so much for being here. Welcome and happy Elul. We hope you're having a very reflective and introspective month of Elul. We're very excited to learn with you today on this amazing topic, Nature and Re- Revelation, what the Jewish calendar teaches us about their relationship uh, with one of the great educators of our time, Dr. Lana Steinhain, who I've known for um, many years and continue to follow and listen to and read um, whatever she's working on and leading. And uh, so I'm very much excited to this for this learning with you. And we're excited to partner today with Temple Solo. And we have our friend Mason Marks here Uh, representing Temple Solal to introduce our scholar today.
1: Hello everyone I hope you're doing well I'm honored to be here on behalf of Temple Solal partnering partnering with Valley Beit Midrash. Um, Yeah so I'd just like to introduce our speaker Dr. Ilana Stein-Hain is the Director of Faculty and a Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America where she serves as lead faculty directs the activities of the Kogod Research Center for Contemporary Jewish Thought, and consults on the content of lay and professional leadership programs. She's a widely well-regarded teacher and scholar, and Ilana is passionate about bringing rabbinic thought into conversation with contemporary life. To this end, she created Talmud from the Balcony, an occasional learning seminar exposing the big ideas, questions, and issues motivating rabbinic discussions. She leads the creative equal Created Equal Research Seminar, which considers the relationships between gender consciousness and Jewish thought. And she co-hosts For Heaven's Sake, a bi-weekly podcast with Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein-Halevi, exploring contemporary issues related to Israel and the Jewish world. Alana earned her doctorate in religion from Columbia University, where she wrote her dissertation on the topic of legal loopholes as a prism for understanding rabbinic views on laws and ethics. She is an alumna of the Yeshiva University graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies, as well as a consortium in Jewish studies and legal theory graduate fellowship at Cordozo School of Law. She also served for eight years as clergy member on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at both Lincoln Square Synagogue and the Jewish Center. She's taught at the Wagner School at NYU and sits on the board of Safaria. Oh, amazing, a living library of Jewish texts. Use that all the time. Alana lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with her family. So I'm glad you could all join us here today, do some learning, especially in Elul, it's a big mitzvah. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Alana Steinhain.
2: Thank you so much, Mason. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Rabbi Yankiewicz. And thank you, Alex, for setting this up. Temple Solel. it's great to be with you. Um. I I do have to mention that I'm not sure that I have spent so much time in my life thinking about what sovereignty means as I do in the month of Elul and seeing the passing of Queen Elizabeth is actually, um, it's actually really making me think about what the idea of having a sovereign which is what we are crowning God to be during this time of the year, what the idea of having a sovereign means to people. As I see people weeping over a flesh and blood sovereign, there is such symbolism to that. So I just, you know, I wanted to make mention of that because that's kind of a huge thing that happened today um, in our world. And, you know, her memory should be for a blessing. And I I wish a lot of uh, comfort to her family and to her subjects, really. So what I'm here to talk about today is the relationship between Revelation and nature. And let me make clear what the issue is in my mind. In my mind, the issue is if we have a Jewish theology that describes God as the author of both a revelation to human beings as to how to act, how to behave in the world, how to live a good life, and also as the author of the creatures and creation that we see around us, I ask myself, what is the relationship between those two acts of sovereignty and those two acts of relating to the world? And I think now that takes on in 2022, it takes on kind of a fever pitch concern as the questions about climate disaster become so politicized instead of actually being about deep questions regarding values and morals that aren't here to polarize us necessarily, but are actually here to galvanize us. And so I'm looking for a religious language that understands what is the role of nature within. A theology that I that I think is really primarily historical, like the collective Jewish, Jewish consciousness, or con- well, really consciousness, that's introduced in the Bible is very historically inclined. It's very much about how God intervenes in history, even as it starts with the act of creation, but in terms of the role that nature plays, it's often in... God upending the rule of nature in order to do something miraculous, which is kind of revelation, right? Revelation is an intervention into the natural order of things. And so I want to spend a little time today thinking, especially as we have a Jewish calendar that actually does have somewhat of a natural impulse to it and a natural pattern to it. I want to think about what the role of nature is. And I really think that the suggestion that I'm going to make is going to surprise you. And I hope in a good way, I hope it's going to challenge you and push you a little bit in a good way. So when I say that the Jewish calendar is related to nature or has some sort of impulse to nature, one major way that we see that is simply that. The creation story at the opening of Genesis, at the opening of three sheets, sets Shabbat, our first calendrical holiday, an ongoing calendrical holiday, cyclical calendrical holiday. It sets it as the crowning achievement of the creation of the physical world, right? Of the natural world. Another layer that I see as we think about the Jewish holidays coming up, And especially Rosh Hashanah, because it's the first day of a month, is that we have an annual calendar that is based on the cycles of the moon. We have Rosh Hashanah would be proclaimed back in the day based on people seeing a phase of the moon that helped them know it's the beginning of the month. And holidays that were even on the 15th of the month, such as Passover and Sukkot, would also be based on that because. If you didn't know when the first day of the month was, which is determined by if the new moon showed up then, you wouldn't know when the 15th day of the month is. And in fact, you have these really interesting stories of people showing up, rabbis showing up in the Talmud, who came from one place and went to another place. And they said, well, isn't it interesting that you're all here eating on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement? Because where I come from, the Day of Atonement was yesterday because we made, we saw the new moon at a different time. So that's the second layer is our lunar count. But I don't think it's as simple, and I think it's beautiful when people talk about how nature is some sort of revelation that God shows the world how mighty God is that God can create. I don't think that's necessarily capturing a certain degree of tension that I think the rabbinic tradition sees between the God of revelation and the God of nature, being the same entity, but revelation and nature do not always correspond. And I wanna show you what I mean by looking today at two texts that express a tension between revelation, that is the law, the Uh, authority to proclaim rabbinic law, the celebrations of Jewish practice, and what you actually see reflected of that in nature and what you don't. And then after we see those two and get a sense of the tension, I want to propose a way in which I see the rabbis trying to find some positive relationship between revelation and nature. And it's not just by saying, well, God is in nature. In fact, I think the rabbis are pretty against that idea of God being in nature. I think there's something else going on, okay? So let's start, I know we're gonna have like 20 minutes for questions at the end, something like that. So I'm gonna put some things out there and then we'll talk, okay? And of course, if you have any questions or comments that you wanna put in the chat, Please feel free, I'll look at it periodically. So if I miss your question at the beginning, at some point I'll I'll pause there. I'm gonna share my screen. The first story that we're going to look at is from Breshit Rabbah, from Genesis Rabbah. Now Breshit Rabbah, it's pretty early when it comes to midrash, when it comes to works of kind of storytelling from the rabbis sometime between the third and the fifth century. And it sets up this great conversation between essentially the archetypical Roman and the archetypical rabbinic Jew. We have Turnus Rufus, who in English or Latin was known as Tineus Rufus, who is a Roman officer, essentially, someone who has government political standing. And Rabbi Akiva, who is someone who is really representative of the rabbinic creative impulse in interpretation. And what's really interesting about this odd couple is that in rabbinic literature, Turnus Rufus is known as the person who killed Rabbi Akiva, who put him to death, who executed him. So let's see what they're going to say. And I hope it's okay. I'm going to read it in Hebrew and translate it. Okay. Sha'al Turnus Rufus at Rabbi Akiva. Ternus Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, Amarlo, and it was Shabbat. Amarlo, he says, My Yom Miyomai, excuse me, why is today different than any other day? Like what makes Shabbat special? Amarlo, Rabbi Akiva says, Oh, really? Uma gevermi gvarim, what makes you special? What how is this man, that's you, Turnus Rufus, different from any other men? Amar Lo, he said, Well, what do you mean? Sharet Sahamelech the Chabdani. The king wanted to honor me, so he gave me status. That's what makes me different. So Rabbi Akiva says, well, Shabbat is the same. Amarlo. Avzo melech The sovereign, God, God self, also wanted to honor this day, Shabbat. So if you want to ask me, why do you people, why is Shabbat Because spe- that's what God decided, fiat. The same way your sovereign told you that you were going to have a political office. And Turnus Ruba says, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. That's not my questions. He says, Amarlo, lo, Rufus says, Kach amarti l'cha. This is what I was trying to say. Mio mar shehayom Shabbat. Who says today is Shabbat? Like, I look around, Shabbat looks any different from any other day of the week? I'm not talking about what clothing are people wearing. I'm not talking about what food are people wearing. I'm saying when I look outside my window, can I tell if today is Monday or Shabbat? Natural world provides no indication that today is God's special day. And implicitly, if God wants Shabbat to be a special day and God is the author of nature, shouldn't revelation line up with nature? Shouldn't you be able to look outside your window on Shabbat and see something that looks different? Like nature should say, the God of Shabbat is also the God of nature. And you should be able to tell there's a rainbow. There's something, right, some sign, a low. So Rabbi Akiva says, okay, I have a proof for you. Nahar Yochiach, The Sambation River, with some, te- some people call the Shabbat River, is going to prove it actually pulls rocks along all week. And on Shabbat, it rests. Now this river is actually mentioned. I, I don't remember if it's in Herodotus. I think it's in Herodotus, maybe Thucydides. It, it's actually mentioned among Greco-Roman historians as there was this river that they kind of called the Sabbath river because every seven seven days it would stop flowing. And they basically said this river is lazy like the Jews, just like the Jews take a day off. This river takes a day off. So it was called something, you know, a a cognate with the Sabbath river. So Rabbi Yehiva says, you want your proof in nature, go find that river. It will show you that it stops. Ternus Rufus doesn't like this explanation, maybe because he doesn't really believe that 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 river exists, maybe because that's one river that you'd have to go find in some exotic location, but it's not what's predominantly in nature when you look on a Shabbat. Amarlo he says, What are you sending me after the wind? What is this ridiculous answer that you're giving me? Forget. It. So Rabbi Akiva says, I'll, I'll try again. Amarlo Rabbi Akiva says, Ba'al ov The necromancer, the person who can communicate with the dead, they'll prove it to you that today is supposed to be Shabbat. It turns out you can get the dead to rise all week, but you can't on Shabbat. And in fact, your father's own grave could prove this too. It doesn't billow with smoke on Shabbat, which kind of he's implying your father is sitting in hell. And he's in fires and during the week, billows with smoke. But on Shabbat, it doesn't happen. Amarlo, Turnus Rufus says, How dare you? Bizito, you've scorned my father. Biashto, you've humiliated my father. Kilalto, you've cursed my father. And yet, Turnus Rufus goes to check. Yet vadak ba'aviv. He went to check on his father, his father who was dead. Kol yamot hachol Allah. The whole week. Either maybe it was the smoke that went up, or maybe it was the father that went up, or maybe it's both. Allah, But on Shabbat, couldn't get to him. He brought his spirit forth through the necromancer after Shabbat. Amarlo, he says, What? What? You become a Jew since you died? You don't work on Shabbat. You can't come up on Shabbat. Amarlo, so. Turnus Rufus' father says to him, everybody who doesn't, you know, sanctify the Sabbath of their own accord in the world of the living. Here in the metaphysical, beyond, they experience it no matter what, whether they want to or not. In other words, you sit in the natural, physical world in which you live. You are not going to know. You're going to have to decide, is this Shabbat? Do I care that it's Shabbat? Nobody's forcing you. There's no external sign. There's no forcing. But in the metaphysical beyond, I don't have a choice. Amarlo, So serve, it says, what do you mean you keep Shabbat? What work are you doing during the week that you're resting on Shabbat? All week, we get punished, essentially. We get judged for what we did in our former lives. And on the Sabbath, we're able to rest. So he has to go somewhere metaphysical to find out that it's Shabbat. And now Tineus Rufus comes back to him and says, okay, okay, now I'm really confused. Chazar Rabbi Akiva, he goes back to Rabbi Akiva. Amarlo, he says, if you are right, Rabbi Akiva, that God wants to honor the Sabbath, meaning if you are right, if you're idea of revelation is true, that God wants to add, honor the Sabbath, I still maintain you should be able to see that in the natural world. Then you know what? Al yashiv baruchot. No wind should blow on Shabbat. Al yoreh bagishami. No rain should fall on Shabbat. yitzmach And no grass should fall on Shabbat. Or probably al Yatsmach, meaning God won't allow it to grow on Shabbat. Right? Tineus Rufus can't get over the idea that you could have something that you claim is divine that tells you that this day is different from every other day. And yet, when you look out in nature, you don't see it. There's no indication. He doesn't understand how something could be divine if you don't have these overlapping. So, Rabbi Akiva says, Amarlo, Rabbi Akiva says, Tipach Rucho Shel ish. You know what? Drop dead. I will give you a metaphor. What is this like? God allowing there to be wind on Shabbat, maybe God blowing wind on Shabbat, however he's expressing it. To someone who lives in their own courtyard. Even on Shabbat, even if they won't carry in the public thoroughfare, they will carry in their own backyard. Afkan, so too here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God. kol HaOlam Kulo. Because the whole world belongs to God. Ve'en reshut Acheret Imo. There is no other authority besides God. Hare Mutar Bechol HaOlam Kulo. God could let whatever happen in the world on Shabbat happen. So far from you suggesting, Turnus Rufus, that the fact that the revelation of Shabbat is supposed to be a day that God wants to honor. And nature, the natural world, what's happening with rain and with wind and with all sorts of flora and fauna and animals, the fact that they don't match up for you, Tanais says, this doesn't make sense. That can't be one God who has both of them. For me, I'm telling you, no, no, that's the definition of God's authority. God can do whatever God wants in the natural world on Shabbat. Now, my question to you by a show of hands, and it can be your fake hands, okay? It can be your uh, reaction hands. Who here thinks, hey, this Turnus Rufus guy actually kind of has a point. Can you give me me your um, reaction hand if you think he's got a point? Okay, I got one. I got one honest soul, right? It's like, you don't want to side with the Roman when it's Rabbi Akiva, you know? But Suzanne, that's why I like you. Okay. Who here says, actually, I agree with Rabbi Akiva. I think what Rabbi Akiva is suggesting here that, you know what, nature doesn't have to match up to Revelation. Just because we think it's Shabbat doesn't mean the whole world has to look that way. Who agrees with that? Right. So we've got Joan, and I don't know how to pronounce your name. Oh, can you unmute yourself and tell me how to pronounce your name? Well, yeah. It's beautiful, Igleia
0: and Greek Clarissa.
2: What do you say? Oh, just ancient Greek. That's all. Gorgeous, gorgeous, right? Uh, Lana, Carol, okay. So we've got a lot of rabbinic Jews here. We got a lot of rabbinic Jews, right? I want you to think about this. What does it mean for somebody to say, "I don't think that my revelation and like my belief in what's sacred." has to be out there in nature. But instead, I look at God as a being who can manipulate nature. What does that say about a relationship with nature, right? I want you to compare the person who walks out into nature and says, wow, I am so awed by the power of this, and somebody who walks outside and says, the power is actually in the synagogue. What's going out on out here, very lovely, but God can do whatever God wants out here. But if I wanna actually talk to God, it's gonna be through the Sabbath. It's not gonna be through looking at the trees because that's essentially what Rabbi Akiva is saying, right? And Suzanne, I assume that's why you think Deneas Rupus has a point, right? There there is something here that's a little bit, well, let's say it's like really, really gorgeous outside. Are you in the synagogue or are you outside looking at that tree? And of course you don't have to choose a binary. You know, I get it, you can do all of it. But there is, there's something here that the rabbis wanna put in the mouth of Teneus Rufus so that they can push and say, ah, thank you, Suzanne, don't the Kabbalists, you got it, we're gonna get there, okay? Could put in the mouths of Teneus Rufus so that Rabbi Akiva can say, no, our definition of theology, our theology is founded on the idea of God being outside of nature. In fact, there are many who argue, this is exactly why the creation story starts the term. God isn't created by the world, God creates the world, right? God is outside of it. And Rabbi Akiva in certain ways, is actually pushing that. Clarissa, we're getting it. I love it. I wanna show you another point of tension. Okay, so that's Shabbat, which is literally the crown of creation. Rabbi Akiva is saying, by the way, I want you to know, you don't have to necessarily see that Shabbat is at all reflected in creation at all, okay? The second, what about the lunar calendar? What about Rosh Hashanah, where we're literally looking to the moon to tell us, when is the time for this? Now, of course, we have calendars. But that's because at some point we had to set into motion, all right, let's figure out what the next, you know, several thousand years are going to look like on this calendar because we're not going to have this, you know, witnesses coming and telling us about the new moon forever. But it's based on the lunar phases. of It's, it's based on the lunar phases. So let's see another example. Okay. Here we go. Very brief. It's a Mishnah. A Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. And I'm sorry that the English and the Hebrew are not all on the same page, so it makes it a little more difficult, but I don't want to make it smaller. Demut surot levanot hayu le gamliel, there's a lama missing, ba'aliato, b'tavla uvekotel. Rabbi Gamliel has, like a good astronomer, he has pictures of the phases of the moon in his attic on like a nice graph, right? I'm thinking about my kids going into their school classrooms, right, to show you like the moon, when it's a sliver, it's you know this phase of the moon, it's a sliver. This phase of the moon, it's a little bit more, bigger. This phase of the moon, it's a little bit... Here's a full moon, then it's going to go down again and the sliver is going to be on the other side, right? Why? Shebahen et yo tot. He would help people who didn't necessarily know what they saw. They came and they saw the moon and they wanted to witness that they saw the moon so that they could proclaim the new month and they could do all the holidays. And not everybody knew exactly what they saw. The Omer that should have been like a little chip chick that was supposed to be a reish. He says, did you see a moon that looked like this? O or was it a moon that looked like this? Right? He helps them by showing them pictures. Ma'ase v'amru. But once two witnesses who were supposed to say, we saw the new moons so that you could make the holidays and all that. They said, early morning, we saw the new moon in the eastern sky. And we saw it at night on the western sky. Okay. said, These are liars. That's not astronomically possible. And if we have an astronomer on this call, please unmute yourself and explain to us why it's not astronomically possible. But if not, we're going to have to wait on it. Okay. But, But when they came to the court at Yavna, where Rabban Gamliel was in charge, kiblan Rabban Gamliel accepted them. What? But I thought it's astronomically impossible. I thought we're supposed to follow nature to decide what our holidays are supposed to be, right? And another, there was another case where two witnesses came and they said, we saw the new moon last night or really two nights ago. But the next night, we didn't see the new moon. And Rabbi Gamliel accepted them anyway, right? I'm a Rabbi Dosa Ben-Hirkenis, Rabbi Dosa Ben-Hirkenis says, no, they're lying. How can you say a woman gave birth? Well, this is really, should be a good. And on the next day, you see that she's still pregnant. It's not possible. It doesn't make sense. Amarlo Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua says, you know what? He's right. He's right. And then this whole story ensues where Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua want to end up making Yom Kippur on different days because they think the beginning of the month is on different days. Rabbi Gamliel forces Rabbi Yeshua to come on his day that he thinks is Yom Kippur. He says, no, no, no. The day you think is Yom Kippur, it's not and come and I want you to violate it to show that you believe in my authority here. So even in a situation where we're saying we're following the moon to tell us how to establish revelation, even in that situation, Rabbi Gamaliel is able to say, yeah, I'm going to ignore it right now. I'm going to ignore it right now because the authority that I have that's vested in me for whatever reason, right? And then the Talmud tries to figure out what are the reasons why did you do this? We can set it aside. Yet another example. And Joan, I, I hope, is it a question that needs clarification for this moment? No, I just noticed I still had my hand raised from before, so I'm lowering it. Oh, okay, good. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I think that when we look at rabbinic literature, we do not see what we often hear from Kabbalistic, mystical Jewish thinking. In Kabbalistic, mystical Jewish thinking, we have versions of what we would call panentheism, which is very important, that little N, panentheism, don't make fun of me that I'm being like a very didactic person by putting this in the thing, panentheism, that God is in nature, and you even in some Hasidic circles, you have pantheism, which seems to be almost God is nature, or nature is God. I do not think that that is the rabbinic Talmudic approach. You want to be a Kabbalist? Have a great time. Beautiful. You have an easier time, I think, being an environmentalist as a Kabbalist. Because I see God in nature and I see, right? And you'll find different texts and you'll read the, you'll read them how you read them. But I do not think when I read rabbinic literature, and I mean the Talmud and the things that make up the Talmud and network with the Talmud from that time period, what we call the Mishnah, what we saw the Tosefta, its companion piece, what we call the Talmud Yerushalmi, the one that was created in Palestine at the time, and the Babylonian Talmud, I don't see that that's their primary theology. And if I'm a person who cares about the environment, and I can't just resort to saying, well, God is in nature and that's it. I see the rabbis over and over again saying, God is master over nature, God is outside of nature, And God has given us permission to use nature only in good ways, don't get me wrong. God does not want us to waste nature. God does not want us to exploit nature for sure, right? But there's still that overarching sense that God is in control of nature and God has given us control over nature. And what we should do is be benevolent despots over nature, right? And I think that's a slippery slope, right? The stewardship model is kind of a slippery slope. And I actually want to show a different model that I see in rabbinic literature, okay? And this is what i said, And then we'll open to questions and comments and all the things, okay? Check this out. And you can find this. This is a thread, okay? Let's go down to number four, okay? You can look at number three on your own time. It's a beautiful Jerusalem Talmud um, excerpt, okay? The Sifre. The Sifre is a legal rabbinic work about the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, Bimidbar and Zvarim. This is the Sifrei on Zvarim on Deuteronomy, Ha'azinu. And Ha'azinu, that is one of the last, it's really one of the last speeches that Moses gives at the end of his life, where basically he starts the speech with, listen. Who does he say listen to? He doesn't say, hey, people, listen to me. Jewish people, I'm going to die, and I need you to listen to me. He says, Heavens listen to me, and earth listen to me. So this Midrash, which actually doesn't end up being legal in nature, in the sense that Moses is saying something legal, but you're going to see it has a core of law and command in its theme says i want to tell you why god says with the heavens and the earth as my witness i'm going to give you this speech you know why because nature is better at listening than you people okay amar lo ha bar god said to moses and lahem Israel, say to the jewish people have you looked at the heavens and the earth that I have created in order to serve you? Meaning in order to give you rain, in order to give you crops, right? Have you taken a look at them? Shema shinu et midatam. Have you ever seen them change their routine? O shema galgal hachama, maybe you've seen the sun. Eno ole elamin Hamizrach, who may kulo. Have you ever seen the earth, the the sun, excuse me, not rise from the east? The low ode, not only that, the sun is very happy to do what I told it. The sun is very happy to come up every day and to go down every day. I want you to look at the earth that I've created to help you. Shema shintad Has it ever changed its routine? Shema Have you ever planted and it hasn't brought up sprouts? Shema Have you ever planted wheat and barley came up? Or maybe you've seen that. The cow isn't going to thresh today and has decided, oh, I don't feel like plowing today, etc. etc. Uma Eilu, Shalom Asu, and these things, the natural world, creatures, the sun, the earth, the natural world have not been made for schar and have saved. They haven't, they don't get reward and punishment. They don't. If they do something good, they don't get a reward. And if they sin, they don't get a punishment. They, if they don't change their routines, where there's no fear, there's no reward, how about you? Can you learn from them? This is a very different theology of nature. The rabbis often present nature as the most obedient subject, the most obedient commanded creature of God in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. Could you have a situation where something doesn't go exactly right? Sure. And sometimes that something that doesn't go exactly right is a result of human exploitation, right? But I think this is a really fascinating alternative that the rabbis are basically saying, let me tell you how nature and revelation are connected. They are connected in the sense that revelation is a message from God telling people what the good life is. And nature also trusts God to tell them what the good life is. You're gonna rise, you're gonna set. You're gonna rise, you're gonna set. And they are so much more, nature is so much more dependable than human beings ever could be, okay? I think that's a little different. Not a little different. I think that's quite different. It's inverting the posture of, well, God is in charge of humans and God puts humans in charge of nature, right? It's actually, God is in charge of humans. God is in charge of nature. And by the way, you should look to nature to get a good sense of how you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do. You want a sense of steadfastness? Look at nature. That's the awe. That's the wow. That's the majesty. Not just the moments that are, you know, wondrous in their differentiation from the daily grind. But actually the fact that the laws of nature actually work that itself is part of a sense of, well, this place is going right. This place is doing the right thing and you should follow its example. I'm gonna pause there and see what questions and comments people have, okay? Very different, very different revelation and nature. And I'm happy, I don't know Rabbi yankowitz I don't know how you usually do this. So I'm, I'll follow your lead.
0: Great, we can just invite folks to unmute themselves. Thank, um, thank you so much, amazing. Yes, hi, Sander. Sander, do you want to jump in? I thought I saw you on mute.
3: I just, said, I just thought it was
1: beautiful. I'm okay. so happy I spent time with you today. Thank,
4: Thank you.
2: you. Gosh! Okay. I hit the wrong thing. That is the sweetest thing I've ever heard, Sander. Now, Aglaya, pull it apart okay so all right so you asked if anyone's an astronomer okay
4: i am an astronomer once removed my younger sister is (laughs) okay she's an astrophysicist who works for nasa okay so um (laughs) and she had this really interesting love hate thing with stephen hawking for a long time now um just a two second version of stephen hawking and why a lot of us have a love hate thing with Stephen Hawking. So he spent all of this time trying to disprove the existence of God by looking at, and he was never able to do it. And at different times in his life, he was willing to concede. I can't disprove the the existence of God, you know, but at different other times he was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do it at some point. I I, I got this. I'm going to do it at some point. I don't even know where he was when he died. I can't even be 100% sure. But the thing about, um, uh, like nature and subordination to God and all this other stuff being the, um, long story short, when we're dealing with someone like, you know, Stephen Hawking or the astrophysicist or anything like that, no matter what, um, you can say all day long that this is caused by this particular gas in this place. Or, you know, this particular, you know, field of who knows what, where, and everything else like that. But um, honestly, though, can you ever say, can you ever say that that disproves the existence of God? Because, you know, to a lot of us, something had to have set that in motion. But then there are other people out there who are just sort of like, no
2: matter what, they're just not going to believe. So I don't know how it's not that. I actually think your question is equally true for revelation, Mm -hmm. right? Right. I think part of what's interesting about the conversation between Tineus Rufus Mm -hmm. and Rabbi Akiva is that in some sense, I think, and and let's, we're to simplify this. We're going to be a little oversimplified for a minute. Okay. Greco-Roman culture was very happy to valorize nature as a divine force, Mm
5: -hmm.
2: a divine force that has its own rules that has to be placated, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And Rabbi Akiva is saying, no, nature itself is not a divine force. God is the divine force that has power over nature. What you're pointing out is that there is a third posture and this is the Stephen Hawking posture, Mm -hmm. which is don't you see nature itself and please never just quote this snippet because I really don't believe this. Okay.
5: Yeah.
2: Nature itself is proof that you don't need God. Mm-hmm. Because look how powerful nature is. And in fact, its steadfastness is proof that it's on an auto loop. Right. And that's right. all it is. Right. So I think what you've what you've really shown us is that if we want to talk about where the rabbinic Uh, This rabbinic approach is sitting, Mm -hmm. it's sitting, it's pushing both of the approaches on either side, the side that says nature is a God and the side that says nature tells you there is no God, right? Right. And the rabbis are saying, no, no, God is in revelation. God is sovereign over nature and nature has something beautiful to teach us about what it means to be steadfast. But yes, that's great. Thank you, and thank you. Yes, Joan. And I don't know, Rabbi Yankus. do you wanna call on people? Because these are your fault. Okay, okay, Um, these are, okay. I like where you ended up. I thought it was beautiful, but I thought
3: the beginning discussion was kind of silly because, and, and no offense to you, but that whole argument that the wind blowing is the wind working. The grass growing is the grass working, makes no sense to me. My cells, you know, on the Sabbath, my cells keep growing. That doesn't mean I'm working. For all you know, the when the air is still, and then finally it blows, that's relaxing. That's not working. Working really is a human concept. So the earth is doing what the earth has to do. If it decides to relax, and stops spinning on its axis, the whole thing gets destroyed. So that that kind of just no, I love it. I love your
2: point. <laughs> I love your point. I think I think I have two questions about the conversation between Rabbi Akiva and Turnus Rufus. My first question is: Is Rabbi Akiva messing with Turnus Rufus, like trolling him, in the sense that Turnus Rufus says, "How come I don't see?" The world showing me that Shabbos is da, da, da. And he's like, what do you mean? Go to that weird river that does that thing, <laughs> right? How come I don't see, oh, go ask your dad who's dead. And he'll tell you about the fires of hell all week and how he's at, right? And the last piece is, well, how come God makes it rain? And what Rabbi Akiva could have said is exactly, right, well, I am with you. What Rabbi Akiva could have said, John, is, what are you talking about? That's not work. What does that work? That's not what. Instead, he says, "All right, if that's your construct, then just imagine it as God does whatever God wants in God's backyard." Right. So that's my first question: is Is he just trolling him? That's one. My second question is: Is there a fear in this discussion of ever wanting nature to work on its own? So what Rabbi Akiva says oh, God can do what God wants in God's backyard. Is that Rabbi Akiva just trying to make sure that nature is not working on its own? Because that would get you back to the idea of either nature as a God or nature working as distinct from God. And so the metaphor that he's using, is it possible that that metaphor is actually basically trying to say, no, 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 God's doing that too. I don't want to, right? Right but all fair questions. And let's also remember how their scientific understanding was very different from our scientific understanding, right? So I think it's a great point for further interpretation and pushing and challenging and thinking about it. I really appreciate that. Okay, Suzanne and then Toby.
3: So it's interesting that whole exchange between Rabbi Kiva and uh, Rufus reminded me of the oven of Aknai argument where over and over again, Eliezer is saying, this is a pure oven. Um, the rest of the rabbis disagree. He said, so Rabbi Eliezer says, well, if I'm right, let the river go backwards and all of those proofs and even God coming out, you know, bat call coming out of heaven saying the law is with Rabbi Eliezer and the majority goes, no, uh, no longer it's up to us. And God, you know, is sort of laughing about it in a, you know, happy way that, so it's almost like you have God over nature and in a parallel way, now you have the majority of the rabbis over God in a certain sense, because they get to make the decisions now because God's like not revealing God's
2: self anymore. That's a great point. It's a great point because the idea that, what do you mean? God, God has split the sea. Of course, you're supposed to walk through it, right? This example that you just gave is God just made a tree uproot itself and move 400 whatevers. So Doesn't that show that's one of the signs in that, in that example, even before there's a a heavenly echo, right? They would have interpreted it as, whoa, there's a miracle. Obviously we need it. It shows you that there's something changing about that, right? There's something changing about the locus of authority. Locus of authority is not going to be in nature. The locus of authority is not even going to be in prophecy, which is why the locus of authority is going to be in law. And then it shouldn't surprise you that when they look at nature and say, whoa, nature is so good at following the law, right? That value of steadfastness becomes so important for them. It's kind of gorgeous, right? So yeah, that's a great, that's a great intertext with this. I love that. Thank you.
3: Um, Toby. Okay. This is probably going to sound
2: incredibly ignorant, but I no, it won't. No, please. <laughs> if you're thinking it, somebody else is thinking it. I never got
3: the either or of God or science, okay? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. In fact, any God worth their salt is gonna invent physics. And we don't know what happened before the singularity. And I don't know if Aglaia's sister uh, <laughs> Um, can maybe comment on this, but um, even theoretical mathematics can't go back beyond the singularity. That's the stopping point. We don't have the unified field theory. You know, um, Higgs boson when it was discovered, woohoo! But it didn't still didn't provide us with what happened before the singularity. Okay, I mean as far I, and this is my paraphrase, I'm a lawyer, not a scientist. Okay, so, but I have a lot of friends who are. Argumentative physicists who either like or don't like uh, Stephen Hawking. I happen to like him, although I can't say I understand him. But anyway, I, I just I I have issues with people who say, well, you know, I'm a person of faith, and uh, you know, God wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. Well, why is that? Why is that? Why is the belief in God or the faith in God? Why does that preclude a belief in science? God provided science so we could figure things out.
2: So it's interesting. I I, I think it's a very uh, deep, profound point. I am reminded of a different conversation that is um, that takes place. That's also attributed to Rabbi Akiva and Turnus Rufus. They have a few of these in rabbinic literature, where Turnus Rufus basically says, "Oh yeah, well if God didn't want there to be." any poor people, how come God created poor people? Literally, did illustrate, he said, because he's basically saying, well, wait, wait. Now, that this is economics, right? Now, you could also say God didn't create poor people, people created poor people. It's a different conversation. But I think what's interesting is that sense of, well, if God wanted it to be this way, it would just be this way. And if God wants to be some other way, it's just gonna be that way. And the idea that there's no, there's no sort of independent cycle, Uh, like rules of nature, rules of the way things behave, impact that human beings can actually make to change things. It is a, that is a religious posture, but I don't think it's the rabbi's religious posture, right? They even ask, it's a really, it's a beautiful question where they basically say, look, I don't understand. Somebody commits adultery and a baby comes out of it. How is that possible? Why would God allow that?
4: And the answer is- For a second. Okay, just to throw this out there also. Okay. Yeah. You have to get to Nana though. Okay, no, it's just gonna take a second. Okay, so if anybody's a fan of um, Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov or anything like that, though, just to throw this out there. Okay, so I'm reading the Brothers Karamazov, right? And there's a part where they're talking about these young men, these brothers, one of them's atheist, one of them is devout. They're going to believe whatever they want ultimately. So the revelation is gonna come to them even as absolutely no God or absolutely there is a God
2: just tailored for them. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there's a there's a subjectivity to it but that but what I do think is important is I think it's powerful when people can actually articulate what their theology is right do you know what I'm saying meaning the rabbis are saying this is our theology you don't agree with it okay that's your business go be a kabbalist. Yeah. be something else Right? Or maybe they would say, no, get out of here. I really don't want you in my community. But that's that's a different argument we can have about pluralism and the rabbis, which is still in conversation. But the point is, they articulate something, right? And I think that's powerful, rather than just saying, "Ah, eh, it's just what you think, right? Yeah. Articulate something and see if somebody finds it compelling. Why do they find it compelling? That could be very subjective too, right? Like, <laughs> Right? There's like, it's like infinite reversions here. Mm-hmm. Nana or Nona? It's right. Nona,
5: thank you. Nona. I just want to say, um, as a person who is a kind of a obsessed climate activist, that this argument around the rele- uh, the relevance of the argument to me in this moment of time, where we're looking at the Earth being um, at nature being a pretty unreliable um, um, uh, part, not partner, but um, reality right now. Indirect relationship to humanity's incapacity to control our greed or our, um, our our baser nature, our inability to work cooperatively for a common good. Um, that um, is the the part of the discussion that feels really um, meaningful to me, regardless of what we think that um, the. Original relationship is, you know, if, if there is a God that created this world and then set us into it to be stewards. And we've done such a terribly poor job of stewarding in this moment. Um, uh, and nature has become um, unreliable because of our poor stewardship. Uh, that feels to me like the place where um, uh, I look for spiritual guidance around that. I look for um, um, leaders and um, w- wisdom about um, uh, how to regain our, our ethical compass and how to stay um, effective in um, the, in the common discourse ar- around making a difference in in the world and how to how to use our ethics powerfully in this space as. Rabbi yeah. does in so many so many spaces
2: yeah I, I completely respect that and i would say if i had to write a continuation of that last midrash that we read i would essentially write god turning to the people and saying you you've ruined it you've ruined them the whole point was that nature was supposed to provide this incredible steadfast beautiful, well-run ecosystem, not only do you not know how to listen to me, but you've ruined the thing that knows how to listen to me. Right? Like what does it actually look like when, you know, to, to give a, a mundane example from parenting, that when my kid does something wrong, it's one thing that my kid does something wrong. It's another thing when my kid gets another kid to do something wrong.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And I say, how do you, what 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 are you doing? You want to mess yourself up? Mess yourself up. I mean, I would never say that to my child, but you understand. You can't go. So there's something you're you're almost telling me there's something powerful to be written here, a language, a religious language that says you are corrupting the earth that is what you're doing you're corrupting the heavens and the earth that's really deep thank you for that
5: second really paragraph of the shema
2: second paragraph of the shema look i think you go back also to the the story of the flood right mm-hmm. it's that term of corruption is used over and over again you know corruption
0: corruption corruption yeah beautiful beautiful we want to thank you all so much for joining us today we want to thank Temple Solo for partnership and Mason Marks for being with us, representing Temple Solo. Thank you all for your beautiful thank comments. You. And thank you, Dr. Alana Steinheen, for your awesome, amazing thank Torah so always much. and for yeah. um, holding the space for us to think about this. Wishing everyone a shana tovah, beautiful. Hello, uh, Dr. Steinhein, any final comments? I would
2: just say in the middle of people's comments, I literally wrote to Rabbi Shemulia and to Alex, I love these people. Aww. Thank you so much for learning with me and Shana
0: Tova.